Thank you for uh, the song, and it is true that when we sing uh, a familiar song to different music, oftentimes you're not only concentrating on the notes, but you're concentrating on the words in different ways. My wife Lenora will be here next week, and she'll play an arrangement of Amazing Grace. So hopefully you can be here for that. Just a reminder for those of you who uh, come each week, but perhaps not all of you can be here each week. This, is, this, this time together on Thursdays is a, is a biblical study of grace, the truth of grace, the concept of grace. Grace uh, meaning God's work in our lives uh, through Jesus Christ by the power of His Holy Spirit. And we are also considering some passages from the book by Lewis Smead's Shame and Grace. And um, as I've said at the beginning, the readings from uh, Smead's do not always coincide with uh, with the sheet that's in front of you or the Bible study that we we do. But the idea is that uh, at some point, maybe you will find that, that correlation. As I said at the beginning of this series, uh, I, I, I wanted to deal with this subject because this is not about guilt, uh, that is our standing before God, uh, but rather uh, shame, that is as we stand before ourselves. And as uh, Dr. Smeads uh, uses in his book, uh, it's that idea that uh, we're not good enough. And that there are many experiences in our life that cause us to experience shame. And even though we might not identify those feelings as shameful, the fact of the matter is that they oftentimes get in the way of uh, experiencing true joy and true responsiveness to what God has done for us in Christ. And over the course of 45 plus years of ministry, I have met many, many folk and, uh, who, who will express to me those feelings of shame. And I described some of that in our first session together. And some of you know what it is to feel that because you've told me about it since we've been together. Smeads describes the many sources of our shame. And that's where I want to begin this morning. He has a section entitled, The Sources of Our Shame, and the first section has to do with how our parents shame us. Now, wouldn't that be the kind of subject that we all want to hear, especially if we are parents ourselves? But again, as uh, I told you at the very beginning, the reason I like this book is because of the very human stories that he tells And I relate to many of his stories because Dr. Smeads grew up in an area similar to where I grew up in western Michigan. And it seems like uh, that area of western Michigan is not only the place where the sun does not shine very often. I want you to know that Zeeland Holland has more cloudy days than any other place in the United States. So there's a general depression in that area, not just atmospheric, but a general feel sometimes that uh, we just don't know how to deal with, with all of this weather stuff. 
And um, my, my college roommate was a guy from uh, Arizona area. And uh, he, told, he said to me one day, Ralph, you do know that there are other places in this world where the sun does shine. Well, uh, Grand Rapids and, and Western Michigan deal with a lot of cloudiness, mostly because of the lake effect, as you probably have heard. But I, I think also in uh, growing up in an area where there was a lot of influence of the church and uh, strong uh, families, uh, Grand Rapids, uh, for example, has uh, three major components in its population. There's the Dutch population, there's the Polish population, and there's the African-American population. They oftentimes lived in their respective places. And if you know anything about the Polish, you know anything about the Dutch, you also know that they're not only clean, because they like to keep things clean, but they have a way of uh, trying to oppress their children as well. So, <laughs> so uh, that's why some of the stories I relate to rather, uh, rather openly. I'm reading now from chapter 9, for those of you who maybe did buy the book, How Our Parents Shame Us. This is a rather lengthy opening statement, but I think it's appropriate uh, for us to hear. A man I know disowned his children. When I learned what he had done, I thought that he had decided not to leave his children any of his money, of which he had more than his share after he died. But this is not what he really meant. He meant to purge them from his life, make, make it official that he despised and rejected them. Disowning a child is the sure way to get a child to feel that he is not worth owning. The tragedy of being disowned is compounded by the fact that very decent people disown their own children. They may not do it totally, and they may not tell anyone about it. They may do it in bits and pieces, with facial expressions, chiding voices, and pious rebukes, without ever saying, I disown you. However, they get the message across to their children as surely as if they announced it in the newspaper. If I'm going to make clear what I mean by disowning a child, I need to tell you what I mean by owning a child. I wish I had a better word for it. I'm afraid that when I talk about owning, I may sound as if I'm talking about possessing a child. But owning is not the same as possessing. If we possess something, we, can con we control it, use it, neglect it, and get rid of it as the mood strikes. This is why only lifeless things may be possessed. But if we own a person, we give her our commitment of an unconditional love and thereby tell her that she will never be disowned never rejected, never despised. The difference between owning and possessing come down, comes down to this. We possess things, but we own persons. We do whatever we wish with what we possess. We treat a person we own as the godlike and therefore inviolable being he or she is. Possession is control. Ownership is commitment. It seems to me that to own a child means at least these three things. First, 
taking responsibility. I respond to my child's deep need to be owned with a commitment that we will always belong to each other. Second, feeling pride. I'm eager to let the world know that this child and I belong to each other. Finding joy, thirdly. I am grateful and elated that this wondrous human being is here with me, and I am here with her. Two of my friends gave me a tender hint recently of what it means to own a child. Esther and Max Dupre's granddaughter was a wee thing when she was born. She weighed one pound, seven ounces. And as Max describes her, she was, quote, so small that my wedding ring could slide up her arm to her shoulder. The child's natural father had deserted his family a little while before she was born. The medical team gave her a 5 to 10% chance of living three days. The nurse in the intensive care unit gave Max some firm instructions. He shares them in his splendid little book, Leadership Jazz. And if you've never read Max Dupre's little book, Leadership Jazz, you owe, owe it to do so, particularly if you've ever had any place of leadership anywhere, whether or not you are a leader in your family or a leader of business or whatever. Max Dupre is the former CEO and president of Herman Miller. Max stands about six foot eight. He's a wonderful man, marvelous Christian. Lenore worked for him and with him when we were in seminary together. And um, so when I imagine his wedding ring uh, sliding up the arm of his granddaughter, I can imagine that. He is a very fine and gentle, gentle man. But this is what this is what the nurse said to him, and I share these words from this nurse as the key to ownership. She said, For the next several months, at least, you are the surrogate father. I want you to come to the hospital every day, and when you come, I would like you to rub her body and her legs and her arms with the tip of your finger. While you're caressing her, you must tell her over and over how much you love her. Because, you see, she has to be able to connect your voice to your touch. The baby survived, thank God, and bears the name Zoe, a Greek word that means life. I do not know what it means for newborn children to feel feelings, but I'm absolutely sure they feel them. What did Zoe feel? The touch and voice of loving ownership. These, I'm sure, made her feel belonged to, accepted, and owned by the loving people who made their commitment to her with touch and voice. Feeling owned, I am free to make four fundamental discoveries about myself. One, I am someone who has been loved from the beginning 
by the person who gave me life. Second, I am someone to whom someone else made an unconditional commitment from the beginning. Three, I am someone whose parents consider me worthy of the love they give. Four, I have the power to own myself. I take responsibility for my life. I am proud to be who I am. And I have joy in being myself. Feeling owned, I contend, is love's way to immunize a child against shame. Now I want to explain how feeling disowned is the seedbed of shame. So, here's the one side. What does it mean to be owned and feel owned? Now we're talking about the feeling of disowned and the seedbed of shame. The most obvious way for a parent to disown a child is to be unable to take responsibility for her. Kathy, my daughter, felt disowned by the mother who conceived her, carried her, gave her birth, and then gave her to Doris and me for adoption. Kathy knew in her mind that having been given for adoption as a baby had nothing to do with her worth as a woman, but what she felt, not what she thought, is what made it a special challenge for her to own herself. Her feelings told her, if I had been worth it to her, my mother could have found a way to keep me. Would she own me now if she could see me? I need to find out. Kathy was determined to find her birth mother, but was discouraged at the start. The people at the adoption agency told her that her mother by birth had never called, never written, never asked what happened to her baby. Kathy told me about how she felt. Dad, Kathy said, she never even asked about me. Didn't care enough to pick up a phone and make a call. Didn't care where I went and what happened to me. Who knows how many people of infinite worth cannot own themselves with pride and joy because somebody did not have the resources to take responsibility for them. A parent can disown a child in bits and pieces too. Someone has marketed a kind of pillow-sized mitt with a thick thumb in it where a baby's bottle can fit. A mother can snuggle her child up to the bottle and get him fed without the touch and voice of loving ownership. The people who make that mitt will make it a little easier for harried mothers to disown their children, if only for a while. The children will pay with shame without being too personal about this. In our own family, we have someone who is very close to us who just recently was told that she could go into her room where she was raised as a child, has not been back to that house for most of her adult life, and she could take from that room anything that represented her life with her mother. She has not seen her mother for over four years. She has not 
her mother has not seen the grandchildren, the children of this woman for over four years. So this person went into the room and she looked through all of the things that sort of represented her childhood, but she did not find a baby book, nothing, no pictures, no birth certificate. And she came home and she said, I always knew that my mother thought I was just in the way. You say, that sounds extreme. It is extreme, but it's real. It's real. A second, a parent's inability to take pride in ownership is more subtle, but no less real way to disown a child. A tired and discouraged parent can be unable to take pride in a child, if only for one critical moment, because she does not have the power to take pride in herself. One Sunday when I was a boy, a few brothers and sisters in the faith dropped in at our house for a visit after the evening service at our church. I sat alone in our darkened kitchen, ears cupped at the keyhole of the door that separated the kitchen from the living room, catching what I could of their gossip about the sick and erring members of the congregation. That's part of my background too, by the way. By and by, they shifted to some modest bragging about their children. Better than average children, they all were, growing up nicely, well on their way to making something of themselves in the world of real Americans. My mother must have wished to God that she had it in her to be a booster for her own brood the way her friends boosted theirs. However, her gentle demons drove her to run us down. We were not too bright did not do what we were told, wore out our clothes too fast, and caused her a lot of worry. I heard what she said, and I slunk to bed like a disowned child. This magnificent woman prized us more than she valued her own life. When her husband collapsed one Monday morning and died at the age of 31, She was caught without any job skills, without a brother, sister, or cousin on the continent, not able to write English and hardly able to speak it, and without any social welfare. What she did have were five rambunctious little ones whose mouths she filled three times a day by scrubbing strangers' floors. She was only 30. But she had put every honorable desire and every need native to a woman's heart on hold so that she could give us what we needed. My mother took responsibility for us heroically, but why could she not own us with pride in front of her neighbors? I know the answer, and it's a sad thing to know. She did not dare take pride in us because she did not dare take pride in herself. Why did this great woman feel so depleted of self-worth? I will tell you, I could tell you many things. 
But I can tell you this. My mother had a demented stepfather who apparently when she first showed signs of ripening, went crazy at the sight of her. He repeatedly, day after day, grabbed her by her hair, lifted her off her feet, beat her with his fists, and the sin of the father becomes the shame of the daughter, and the shame of the daughter shrivels her power to take pride in herself. And be aware, please, that those stories are being repeated over and over and over in our culture today. And we don't have to go to other cultures, don't have to look at other places today. Children are experiencing things in their homes that no children should experience. Simple little thing. I meet every Wednesday with a guy, a little guy by the name of Alex. He's in the third grade. It's with the ministry that we know as Kids Hope. Some of you may be familiar with it. It's just a small mentoring program where there's a church, one church, takes one school, and we take one child with one adult, and we spend one hour a week with that child. And yesterday, I said, and how is your mom? And he said, she's not home. We're not supposed to ask lots of questions. He said, she's living in Holland. She drinks too much. She has to be in rehab. Who are you living with? I'm living with my grandpa. No grandma, no mom, no dad, because his dad's in prison. Is that happening over there someplace? No. It happens to a little lad in the school that's right near the church where I work now. Disowning. Finally, consider how parents can disown a child simply by showing no joy at their existence. Sheila and Lambert Scam had one great secret of their own, a secret shame of their own, that flowed into all of their children's feelings about herself. They lived in favor with God and man at the Church of Fundamental Truth, but Sheila felt a secret shame for an unholy stream of sexual desire that flowed too strong for comfort in the shadows of her saved soul. And when she was beyond the time women in her circles properly conceived, Sheila became pregnant, and it was not long before everyone in the congregation could see that she and Lamber, at their disgusting age, had been up to something. Nice way of saying it, isn't it? I hope I don't have to explain what he just said there. <laughs> Elizabeth was born as the child of their shame. From the start, Sheila and Lambert made it clear to Elizabeth that they took no joy in her existence. She knew early on that she was an unwanted child whom her parents did not want to own. 
Since she knew she was only an unclean piece of freight they had to lug into their old age, she determined to live the sort of life that matched a child whose very existence was a shame to her parents. At 17, Elizabeth rode off into her wilderness on the lambskin seat of a Harley Davidson with a 280-pound cyclist who had mastered the skills of making a woman feel unworthy. She lived with him for a brutal year or so, long enough to add a smashed nose, two abortions, and an on-again, off-again drug habit to her undeserved shame. And all the while, her shame convinced her that she deserved no better. We can, I believe, state it as a law of life, disown a child, and when she is older, she will disown herself. This is what unhealthy shame is about. That is, feeling we are not worthy of being owned or of owning ourselves. This is why... When we are healed of shame, the surest sign of health is the power to own ourselves again. All right, that's the first section about um, the sources of our shame. Something you want to say about that, because he also goes on to talk about how the, shir- how the church fed my shame, and how we shame ourselves. And I want to quickly review those two a moment before I go on, and then we'll look at the biblical passage. Any question a moment? Any thought? And please understand this morning that um, I I know what it is to be with people who who can identify with these stories, you don't, have to, you don't have to tell us your story. It's okay. But please understand that we know that in a group this size, there are people, every one of us has some kind of a story. And there are some who maybe have a story that can identify with this. Yes. From your experience, what percentage of the population do you think experiences extreme shame like this lady here I'm not sure if I can describe that I don't know that for sure but um, I would say it's large yeah I would say it's large yeah the question is what would I what percentage of the larger population would feel this kind of extreme shame I don't know because what we do know is that a lot of people maintain their shame within their selves, within their own lives. And, um, you know, we can complain today about the rise of, of social work and, and uh, psychologists and psychiatrists who, and all these counselors who are out there today. But, you know, there's, there's all levels of shame, it seems to me, just in our area. Uh, a middle school principal uh, has had uh, a sexual relationship with a middle school child. How do you account for that? It's horribly sad. But just imagine the shame in, in her life, okay? And then the resultant shame in his own life. And the resultant shame that affects the whole community. It's a small community. Everybody knows him. 
everybody's had their children with him in, in grade school he's, or in middle school. He's been there for many, many years. And everybody knows it happened. And everybody knows it has happened. Yeah. Now, you know, at the same time, I think we have to be very careful about being overly negative about some of that. We have to keep in mind that as population grows, it seems to me that more and more we're going to see these kinds of things happen just because of, of sheer numbers. Having said that, we also are living in a culture where our, our culture feeds into all of the weaknesses, it seems to me, of the human being rather than the strengths of the human being. And um, Newsweek magazine of this uh, of last week talked about how our children are being affected by social media today. And the fact of the matter is that our children are being, um, uh, are ex- being exposed to things far, far earlier than they are being socialized. How do they live in, in, their, in their society? How do they do that? Well, you, you, you grow into that, it seems to me. And if, you, uh, if, if, if things are rather normal in a, grow, in a person's growth pattern, then hopefully they, they become socialized more normally and, and, and properly. But when children are constantly wanting to know how they, how they feel about themselves in relationship to their peers, and the only thing that helps them figure it out is by whether or not the red light is blinking on their little telephone. That, that's an issue. That's a problem. My, my, my son is a, has been a, a principal in a high school. And he said the biggest issue that we have dealt with more and more is the bullying that takes place as a result of kids having cell phones in their hands. And when he asks a group of three girls what they were saying about this girl, we didn't say anything. In checking their phones, they said a lot of things about this one girl. Those are the kinds of things that are feeding, it seems to me, disownership today. Someone here had a question. Um, A pastor's wife once told me that um, she thought that... uh, one of the big failings of Christians is that they felt it was their bounden duty to point out all the shortcomings yeah. of everybody else. Yeah, yeah, that can be a problem, to say the least. All right, how the church fed my shame. A person can catch a healthy case of shame at church. She can also find healing for her shame there. This is the way it should be. The church is meant to be a place where we get the courage to feel some healthy shame and the grace to be healed of it. But sometimes people come to church carrying a load of unhealthy shame and their burden gets heavier for having come. I remember three voices in the church, and I think uh, they were on the, the sheet last week. The voice of duty, God required me to be perfect before I would be acceptable to him. Two, the voice of failure, I was flawed, worse than imperfect, and all in all, a totally unacceptable human being. And thirdly, the voice of grace, by the grace of God, I could be forgiven for my failure. And then he goes on to talk about each of those, the voice of duty and the voice of failure and ultimately the voice of grace. I don't have time to read all of that right now. Um, But let me see uh, this last 
No. All right. And then finally, how we shame ourselves. The capacity for healthy shame is a gift. The experience of unhealthy shame is a curse. We do not deserve it, but we are co-responsible for nurturing it into chronic pain. Uh, When it comes right down to it, cruel as it sounds, we suffer the shame we do not deserve because we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves with the falsehood that we are unworthy human beings. We support our deception with plausible reasons why we should feel unworthy. We pollute our consciousness the way a factory manager may release toxic chemicals into a stream and immediately convince himself that the stream is where he should release them. This is why we usually need outside help, divine or human, to uncover our own self-deceit. Let me suggest some of the artful dodges that shame-prone people use to trick themselves into unhealthy shame. First, shame-prone people discount their positives. Second, shame-prone people magnify their flaws. Third, shame-prone people judge themselves by undefined ideals. Fourth, shame-prone people translate criticism of what they do into judgment of what they are. Five, shame-prone people read their own shame into other people's minds. It's always been intriguing to me that people will say to me, uh, they're thinking this about me. It's the worst thing you can do. The worst thing you can do. How do you know what the other person is thinking? And lastly, shame-prone people doubt their shame, but act as if they believe it. In sum, we who, offer un- we who suffer undeserved shame tend to fan the flame of shame that was lit in us by others. We do it with various forms of self-deception. The fact that we deceive our own selves does does not make our lie any less a lie, nor does the fact that our deception make us feel humble turn the lie into a truth. As C.S. Lewis remarks somewhere, if a splendid artist says he is a dabbler, he is not being humble. He is only being false. All right. Now I know that's a lot of stuff. That's a lot of listening to my bad voice. My crud still hasn't left me. But something you might want to say before we look at the scripture passage for today. That's Don. <coughs> wait for the wait for the microphone. The idea of shame seems to result from lack of responsible ownership, according to the author. Yeah. And then if you look at ownership, um, if you talk about ownership in, the, in a spousal relationship, it's usually taken negatively, like I own my spouse. It's like, it makes, uh, makes you sound controlling, which is politically incorrect. Yeah. Um, but as I, if I understand the author right, he's looking the idea of ownership as a more committed and responsible. Uh, that's correct. And maybe that's a little different than the, what society would be yeah. 
saying right. about ownership and right. relationship. Yeah, there's that whole business of saying that God owns us as well. And there's something good about that because he created us, made us, made us for himself, that kind of thing. That needs to be carried over into positive ways into our relationships as well. All right, let's look, please, at Ephesians chapter 2. You will note at the title of the, of the sheet today that uh, this is Amazing Grace, session 3, and that grace is through faith. And probably the most um, uh, positive and probably the most well-known passage of Scripture that has to do with grace is through faith is found in Ephesians chapter 2, And the first 11 verses, and I'd like to read this, please. Ephesians 2 and the first 11 verses. Let's hear together God's word. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. For it is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the incomparable, I'm I'm, I'm sorry, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For here are the verses now. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared for us in advance to do. Now, Let's think a moment about grace is through faith. And let us think about the fact that Paul uses the word faith some 200 times in his letters. And the author of Hebrews, which many of you probably will know as the book of faith, the New Testament book that describes people of faith, the author of Hebrews uses the word faith over a hundred times. Perhaps you'll remember that Hebrews chapter 11 is that grand chapter on faith which pictures this marvelous procession of heroes of faith marching down through the ages where the writer says they conquered kingdoms, they enforced justice, they stopped the mouths of lions, and they escaped the edge of the sword. You can read that in uh, Hebrews chapter 11. And then the writer goes on to say that all of these persons were pleasing to God. 
In fact, the author says the world was not worthy of them because through faith they outlived, <clears throat> they outlived, outloved, and outdied all others. Now, in this passage from Ephesians, which I've just read, as I said in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Grace is frequently and most often associated with faith. Grace is God's action. That is God's gift, God's work in our lives. Faith is that response in a person which accepts God's offer of his grace. And it is precisely at this point that we seem to have a problem or there's an issue that has plagued people for a long time. Is faith simply believing or is it a person's response? That's, that's one side of the issue. Or is faith also a gift from God? Just like grace is a gift, is faith also a gift from God? And that question has baffled theologians for many, many years. Now think about your own personal experience a moment when it comes to your own expression and understanding of faith. Based on what we have been speaking about the last few weeks, we can come to the conclusion that our salvation is all of God's doing. And yet there is that point in life which I've described in my own life and which many of you have described in your lives, there is that point in life where I say, yes, when I might have said, no. It's kind of a paradox, is it not? Now, surely if we read Paul's letters, there is much there to emphasize how from the beginning to the end, the Christian life is the work of God active in our lives. His active work in us. Just think of Paul's own life. Paul went from being a prime persecutor of Christians to a prime proclaimer to the Gentiles about the gospel concerning Jesus Christ. Paul is known as the apostle to the Gentiles, the one who would write his letters not only, but the one who would establish churches in the name of Jesus in all of the then known world at that time. On the other hand, there are significant warnings which make it clear that a person can either accept or reject God's offer of grace. And those who emphasize the fact that salvation is all from God have come to believe some rather exclusive doctrines. Some of you will know that a good Reformed pastor, like I am, by the way, <laughs> believe in the teachings of uh, not believe in, but uh, follow oftentimes 
the teachings of the reformer John Calvin. And John Calvin is known as the guy who says that um, God knew before everybody else that you were going to be a Christian, so you don't have to do anything. You just have to sit back and God's going to save you regardless of whatever it may be. That's how we reduce Calvinism, unfortunately. It's not that way at all. Calvinism talks about the depravity of humankind, like the Bible talks about. And it does talk about what we commonly call limited atonement, which means that God's work in Christ is for those who believe. It is limited in that sense. But Paul, uh, the, 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 um, the reformer uh, Calvin also talks about irresistible grace. That is, God's work in my life cannot be resisted in any way. I have to respond to it. I will respond to it. And, um, and then uh, Calvinism also talks about the, the perseverance of the saints. That is, uh, God not only pursues us, but he preserves us as well. But go back a moment. Those who emphasize the fact that salvation is all from God come to believe in rather exclusive kinds of doctrines about God. But against those doctrines must be placed the word that Paul here speaks about when he speaks about the fact that grace can also be resisted in our lives. For example, in the same chapter that we read from Galatians, Paul writes in the 21st verse that the Galatians must not nullify or make void the grace of God in their lives. In Galatians, the fifth chapter, the fourth verse, Paul chides the Galatian Christians because they have fallen away from grace. And when he writes to the Corinthian Christians in the second letter, he pleads with the Corinthians that they do not accept the grace of God in vain. So is there a conclusion to this matter? Well, we can say that grace does not override a person's will, nor does it violate his or her responsibility. And that which enables grace to be effective in your life and mine is what we call faith. Now, you may be seeing, you may be saying to yourself, or you may already be sleeping, well, that's all kind of heady stuff. How can we be more practical about that? Can we give a more practical definition to the word faith? And I want to suggest to you that the Christmas story provides for us some examples of faith. Now, I know everybody's pushing the seasons. The church should really push the season, probably earlier and earlier, because when we get to Christmas, we don't even remember that the, what the story is about anymore. It's okay for the Christian to consider the Christmas story early, before we get to Advent and Christmas, so that we can begin to dwell on what that means for us. Let's try to answer these questions about um, 
defining faith. First, I want to give a definition of faith. Faith is believing that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for. Faith is believing that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for. And with this definition in mind, let me lift up three parts of the Christmas story as recorded in Luke's gospel that I think help us to understand this concept of faith. The Christmas story begins with the story of a faithful priest by the name of Zechariah. He had experienced God's grace. He was called by God to serve God in the temple every day. Every day he went through the actions of what a priest did, that is, to uh, await the promise of God being fulfilled in sending the Messiah. So when he made the sacrifices, when he went into the place of sacrifice, when he read the scriptures, all of it was with the understanding that God had promised that he would fulfill his promises. His work reminded him daily of all of God's actions on the part of God's people. And then the angel comes and says, you and Elizabeth have been chosen to birth the forerunner, the one who was going to tell about the coming Messiah. What was his reaction? Disbelief. He could not believe it. And yet, there was some response as well. There was a barrenness, if you will, in his own life. He knew the promise of God, yet God hadn't fulfilled it. Yet now God was saying, you must believe. This is how it's going to be fulfilled. And out of the barrenness, if you will, of his own spiritual life, and out of the barrenness of Elizabeth's womb, after all, they were, they were old. They were like Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Out of the barrenness of their own lives and her womb would come one who would prepare the way for the coming of the Christ, namely the Messiah. Go back to the definition. Faith is believing that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for. The story of Zechariah is a good example of that. The second example in the Christmas story is the story of Mary and the angel Gabriel. We believe that Mary was a very young woman, probably a teenager. She lived in a humble, devout Jewish home. She had heard of God's promises. Keep in mind that there is a gap of 400 years from the end of the Old Testament to the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years. God's people waited. God's people longed. God's people went to the synagogue and to the temple. 
and they worshipped. And they said, God, when are you going to do what you said you were going to do? The angel comes to Mary, and what's her first response? When she hears that she's going to be the mother of our Lord, she says, how can this be? I am a virgin. And what is the angel's response? The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. My friends, nothing had ever happened like this before. Here's this young, humble, Jewish girl receiving the word of God. And what is the angel's response and Mary's response? With God, nothing will be impossible. With God, nothing will be impossible. And Mary says, Behold, I am the handmaid of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Faith, believing that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for. That's the second story. And the third part of that Christmas story is the story of an old guy by the name of Simeon. Here again, we have a righteous and devout person. The scripture says he was looking for the consolation, the fulfillment, if you will, of Israel. He represents everything that was tried and true, all of the traditions of the Jewish faith. Could he have possibly thought that a baby would be God's answer? Let me ask that question again. Could he have possibly thought that a baby would be the answer to his dreams, his hopes, his expectations? No. God was going to come on a steed. He was going to come on a white horse. He was going to come as a great conqueror. He was going to deliver his people. And yet, when Simeon sees the child, when Mary and Joseph bring the child as they were supposed to, to bring the child to the temple for dedication and for other things that happened at that time, this is what Simeon says. This is at the second chapter, the 29th verse. Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, (laughs) as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the light of all the people, light for revelation to the Gentiles. Mind you, that's a prophetic word. The word was going to go to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Now, certainly, 
Simeon had to change his thinking a bit to accept this truth. But he responds. Faith, believing that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for. Now there are many of us who have experienced God's grace. But what about our response? What about our faith? Do we really believe that God can make happen what he says he will do and what we hope for? I think as Christians, modern day Christians, we need to get out of the habit of knowing about the grace, but not living by faith. How many of us need our own barrenness, if you will, cultivated, and impregnated by the power of the Holy Spirit. How many of our virgin lives need to be overshadowed again by the power of the Spirit? And how many of our old traditions need to be transformed for God's renewing work in our world? When I think of barrenness, I think of a wasteland. And I think of a number of people who have refused to let God have his way in their lives. But God gradually had his way so that his will could be done in and through them. When I think of virginity, I think of young people. And I wonder what our young people today, our teenagers and college students, are learning about our Our faith. Have our children seen parents and grandparents risk for the sake of Jesus Christ? Do they ask, does their faith really cost them something? When I was first in the ministry, one of the young ladies in my congregation said to me on a Wednesday night catechism class, She said, it will take me a long time to believe what you're talking about, Pastor, because I wonder how it has impacted my own parents' lives. My dad prays the same prayer every night when we sit down for supper. And I wonder to myself, isn't there something else about God that we should know? When I think of traditionalism, I wonder if we in this world, in this day, could ever respond like Simeon and say, God, your salvation has now been revealed. I conclude by saying this, that often we think of faith as a noun. Faith is the subject, if you will. But we need to see that faith is really a verb. The word faith always involves action. And when it ceases to imply action, it's no longer faith. Holding a thought about something that is merely believing in something is not faith. Faith is believing something so tremendously 
that it sparks our whole being into action. We must do something. We must be something. We must become something. And that is why Isaiah, when he sees the revelation of God, says to him, Here am I. Send me. And this is why James writes, Our works, our works, our actions, must prove our faith. And I think this is God's word for us today. Thank you.